Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. What you are about to hear is the first part in a two-part episode on Wilhelm Reich. The first part in this series is on the philosophy and politics of Wilhelm Reich in his essay, Ideology as a Material Force. In an upcoming episode of Inner Experience, we are going to bring back Andy from Kaina. On that show, we are going to go into the life of Reich. We intend to talk about his run-in with the FBI, his theory of Orgone, and his infamous Cloudbuster. Also, if you didn't know already, we have an ongoing discussion series on our Patreon account. We have been talking about Gilles Deleuze's difference and repetition. We've made recordings of our two previous seminars, so if you hop in now, you can take a look at those on our Patreon account, and then you'll be able to hop in at the end of the month for our third seminar like you didn't miss any of the events at all. Find us on Patreon, and please subscribe. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. We do some posting there as well. Okay, let's see what's going on with Wilhelm Reich and his notion of ideology as a material force. All right, so we read Wilhelm Reich's ideology as a material force. And just to start out, I'm going to throw this question out to Adam and Will. I'm Craig. And here's the question. Why do people agitate for their own servitude rather than their salvation? What did you get from this essay, Adam? Well, in, in, in brief, it's, it's pure ideology. But uh, in, <laughs> to, a more, to a larger extent, it's the idea of that Marxism, at least in a time when Wilhelm Reich was writing, was too ignorant of the functions of subjectivity. It was only too focused on the immediate economic circumstances of, of production. And it didn't quite understand the psychological character, for Reich, the mass psychological character, the character of the masses, such that systems were able to be reproduced and to perpetuate themselves beyond most immediate economic circumstances. To the extent to which people would fight for their own domination as much as their uh, freedom, well, more so than their freedom, is an extent due to the psychological character of the masses in terms of the certain habits, habituations, repressions, the psychological structure of how they relate to society, their imagined relation to the social order and how they conduct themselves within it, both consciously and unconsciously at the same time. Will, what do you got? There's this moment in the essay that I'm going to come back to time and time again where there is this notion of the truth in the person swooning over the goose-stepping soldier. That the, the person who swoons over the German soldier as he marches down the street or what have you tells you more about the sort of mass psychological structure, the ideological structure of the society than any um, stati Marxist statistician trying to give you sort of a boiled down, vulgarized version of the material uh, relations present uh, in Germany in the 30s. Um, one thing that struck me was just when this text was written, uh, you know, Reich is dealt with by Deleuze and Guattari, and that was my initial exposure to them, you know, two years ago now, three years ago now. Um, but it, it it never dawned on me um, just how remarkably prescient uh, Reich was here. But for me, the, the one notion that's going to be really important is going to be that – 
what do we mean when we talk about a materialist uh, Marxism? And how does the way in which Reich deal with the notion of materialism inform the materialist uh, approach that Deleuze and Guattari will take forward in their work? At least that's what I'm interested in. I really like your example of the goose-stepping Nazi soldier because it reminds me of being boarded on a Southwest air flight. And it's at the point where the military personnel come on the plane and you're just stuck in that all too small seat. And they call for a round of applause as those folks, as was the case, you know, shortly after 9-11. And it's interesting to think about the interior of an airplane as being this sort of tableau of, of ideology and what is conventionally understood by the vulgar Marxist as comprising some of the material conditions of our society, such as the somewhat relatively cheap airplane seat, which has grown smaller and smaller over time, the very low wages of the pilot and the flight attendants, and how this tableau becomes a nexus not only of those quote-unquote material conditions, but also this sort of quote-unquote ideological ritual that we're all asked to partake in. And what Reich wants to do is construct a theory that's adequate to interpreting the totality of this situation. I think the thing, too, is like Reich has this remarkable frustration where he believes that were some of the Marxists of his day to be on that plane with you, they'd lean into you and say, well, you got to understand that this is all just purely uh, the byproduct of a very particular kind of economic domination. And Mm, Reich is just going to say that that's an insufficient explanation, because were that the case, uh, Marxists wouldn't have to be perpetually explaining how they didn't necessarily fail, but their projects were failed over and over and over and over again. Um, And obviously, there are heightened stakes when uh, Reich is writing this. Um, And I I just – I. I really enjoyed this piece, but I'm excited to I'm excited to jump into to the particulars on on some of these some of these terms that he throws around. Just generally, just to say, just to sort of sum up Reich's position in this part of the mass psychology of fascism, it's it's not that he's rejecting the Marxist analysis wholesale before everyone, you know, before alarm bells start going off in any in, 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 uh, of Marxist heads. You know, it's his, his essential argument is that the Marxists have only ever considered property; they are yet to consider propriety, which is you know, properness, the psychological structure of, um, of, re- of everyday life. And it's, it's not that he thinks this is a rejection of um, economics as, as such, but he wants to show how if we use the text of Freudian psychology and developments in psychoanalysis and depth psychology, then we can understand sort of the psychological characteristics of kind of a hangover from an earlier socioeconomic situation than capitalism. We always talk about the repression of sexuality and you know, in the authoritarian structures of the family, of patriarchy, and how this hangover has been co-opted by what he calls reactionary forces, not simply capitalist, but reactionary tendencies in the psychological and social economic structure of, 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 of the societies that, that we live in. He doesn't want to keep it as a simple antithesis between bourgeoisie and, and proletarian, but between reactionary and revolutionary forces. It's why he says you know, there are... Bourgeois, there are bourgeois or sort of you know, factory owners with a revolutionary affect in the same manner as you get with, uh, with Friedrich Engels, for God's sake, you know, you know, par excellence. And the same time you have proletarians with a, a reactionary affect. So we need to understand the forces in terms of reactionary versus revolutionary and how we, as we would come to call it, distill them into one kind of action onto the other and how certain way, in certain ways reactionary forces got distilled. They did in Germany in 1933 
did America in ninety in two thousand sixteen and and onwards, and same as in Britain, and how we can work out the distillation of these different impulses and how we can use it towards revolutionary ends. Yeah, I think too that one thing that's fascinating for me is he's also going to engage in if there is a critique of Marxism, it's not of Marx himself. This is the same thing that Deleuze and Guattari do, right? They they take the materialism present or the dialectical materialism present in Marx's analysis, and then they carry it forward beyond just economic relations. And Reich is particular at many points in this text to say that Marx himself is critical of political economists of his day, revolutionaries of his day that neglect the psychological aspect or the ideological aspect of these relations. It reminds me in a sense of the apprehension that some Marxists had to engage with Jean-Paul Sartre in the 40s and 50s because they felt that his phenomenological ontology was like fundamentally steeped in psychologism and relatively bourgeois. This exists here too, you know, 10 years earlier where if something engages in psychology at all, it's just treated as though it is not, and he writes, uh, it's not supposed to be seen as Marxistic. What Reich is trying to do in just a broader, in broader terms is try to open up the space of analysis to allow for more thorough explanations to be provided, ones that can account for the girl swooning at the goose-stepping Nazi. And I think what Reich is trying to do here, and we talked about this before the episode, from a rhetorical standpoint, he's trying to take the tools of the Marxists, and actually Marx's work and Lenin's work as well, and turn it against this figure of vulgar Marxism. This figure of Marxist analysis, where everything's reducible to economic determinism in terms of who owns the means of production and what we think of as the conventional productive apparatus of society, and sometimes it's brutally quantitative dimension. Yeah, well, th- th- there's that assertion that Marxism degenerates, right, into, ho- I think it's hollow formulas that he calls them, you know, formulas that don't allow for uh, explanations beyond a very particular kind to manifest on the other side of the analysis. I mean, because I'm, I'm just looking at when the German ideology was, was first published, and it was in 1932. And I think Reich wrote this in... Uh, 33. 33, 33. I So I'm wondering sort of the impact of... Because German ideology is a very, as Alpha says, a very positivist kind of Marx. Very hatred of, very anti-idealistic, you know, tracing, tracing the patterns of any idealism in his fellow young Hegelians, and sort of being ruthlessly kind of materialist in how he's trying to do this. And I'm wondering if there was got an influence on sort of the more, not certainly positivism itself, but more abstract forms of scientism or positivism that we found in German intellectual culture at that time, possibly with the release of German ideology, but also with of a certain logical positivist trends. But that's just speculation on my part. One of the things that Reich does is he pulls directly from the German ideology, quotes it in the piece that we're looking at, and he also quotes something from the theory of surplus value. And they're short enough to where I think it might be even worth just quoting them in this podcast. In the German ideology, Marx says, the presuppositions with which we begin are not arbitrary presuppositions. They're not dogmas. They're real presuppositions from which one can abstract only in fancy. And here's uh, Reich's italics. He says, there are the actual individuals, their actions and the material conditions of their lives, those already existing as well as those produced by action. 
Following that up with this quote from the theory of surplus value, he says, man himself is the basis of his material production as of every other production which he achieves. In other words, all conditions affect and more or less modify all of the functions and activities of man, the subject of production and the creator of material wealth of commodities. In this connection, it can be indeed proven that, and here's Wilhelm Reich's italics again, all human conditions and functions, which presumably include the psychological ones, no matter how and when they are manifested, influence material production and have a more or less determining effect on them. And so the challenge here, and and this is something that we'll bring up later, is how do we square the circle when it comes to uh, the priorities of the Marxist versus the priorities of the Freudian-influenced psychoanalyst? And this is one of the things that Deleuze and Guattari are going to confront later on is how do we develop a parsimonious conception of desire whereby we don't have this split between an outside and an inside, a negative and a positive and so on? Yeah, I think that part of the way in which we can square this circle is by just trying to dive into what Reich means when he says... Uh, When an ideology has a repercussive effect upon the economic process, this means that it must have become a material force. Attempting to find the way in which the mass psychological structure upholds and reifies particular ideological dispositions such that They're constantly reproducing material relations. It's going to be sort of that transition that I think is going to be essential in understanding how it is that uh, psychosexual repression, all of these other things that he's talking about, can sort of go malignant and force populations that would otherwise, under the Marxist framework, be pushing for their own sort of salvation to reinvest it in their own repression, right? In the same way that the guilty conscience eventually in Nietzsche finds its way into sort of self-flagellating behavior such that, you know, resentment on the other end of it can can manifest and become the social phenomenon. Yeah, because without a sense of the... the that there's forces working on the level of psychology or even of just consciousness when it comes to reproduction of capitalism. What you're essentially doing is you're waiting to see how many hours of work it takes before the worker finally becomes magically revolutionary. It's like, you know, we, we know the capitalist social relations are, are terrible. So, you know, in, in theory, without a psychological theory of it, you can just say, well, worker goes in, works for one day, says, no. This this is absolutely atrocious. This is horrible, and then he goes revolting, you know, or they do it for a certain amount of years until it's inevitable that they revolt because it's intolerable. And without the psychological aspect, you're just essentially counting down the days to any day now they're finally going to, to to have enough. And some of some of that is present in Capital, right, where where Marx talks about the maturation of or the maturing of uh, the contradiction, such that some sort of break is possible. But then, what I'm reminded of are t- are two figures, Leotard, and I guess not a figure, but the Tikkun Collective, who who in theory of a young girl say, "Look, there there are people who who are entirely consciously aware of the role in which they play in maintaining these uh, material relations, but like it doesn't matter." <laughs> uh, or with Leotard, it's 
don't wait for our spontaneity, right? Um, in a sense, the the only thing that matters is that this is how we invest. Uh, we invest libidinally. We enjoy this. So I, I think I think that Reich is attempting really to lay the groundwork of what would go in a different direction. Like obviously Freudo-Marxism goes in a different direction from Marx. But I think this is really an attempt to lay some sort of groundwork of a possible, not unity, but uh, methodological connection between these two these two movements, the psychoanalytic and the Marxist. I will just say on Lyotard's point, I mean, Le Reich is very sort of anti-Lyotard because because whilst you know Lyotard thinks there's no you know, non-alienated pure region, Reich might not believe that, but he believes the proletarian believes that they they sort of want to carry this strong authoritarian family structure from the peasantry to, to the to the uh, to the urban centres, and it's that sense of a, uh, a reification of one's own identification with the family structure that allows them to be captured by the reactionary forces of fascism. Oh yeah, no no doubt that no doubt that there's like a fundamental difference. It's the same reason why when people say like, oh, are, are like Leotard and Deleuze and Guattari compatible? Like my final analysis, not actually that much. Um, but the reality is what you get and, and part of it is because of of Reich, where Reich basically makes the argument in, late in this chapter that the family is absolutely fundamental. This is page 30, where where um, sort of the family as a space of production, right? The family is the authoritarian state in miniature to which the child must learn to adapt himself as a preparation for the general social adjustment required of him later. Does this not remind us of the first and second chapters of of Deleuze and Guattari's anti-Oedipus. Yeah, that's where they pulled it. And I think it's interesting to note, just to give a general gloss of Reich's theory here, I, I want to return to for one moment, uh, Reich's definition of radical. To be radical means to get to the root of, a, of the problem, to find those things that have been overlooked, to be able to comprehend those contradictions which form our social reality. It sometimes means to find within our new analysis that thing that not only has been overlooked, but perhaps under-theorized. His whole theory of the family is interesting because what he suggests is that our mechanism for educating young people always lags behind the kind of progress that we experience under capitalism. And this is the fundamental challenge to revolutionary progress, is that the speed at which capitalism progresses outstrips the ability of our fundamental social education grounded in the family structure, at least in the 20th century under the nuclear family. And if things move too quickly, or to use DNG terms, deterritorialize too quickly, we will slide back into fascism and people will retreat to that moral anchor that's been inculcated into them by the family. Yeah, I mean, well, that's like the fear that they have with uh, you know, excessively fast. Uh, I know that uh, Coop from Machinic Unconscious posted that that uh, parody of the of the Chet Hanks video where he goes, "You destratify too quickly, you're going to end up a fascist, <laughs> right. right? You're going to be you're going to be right. posting Mencius Moldbug onto your Twitter feed, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know." And that's that's a legit that's a legit fear, um, and it's one that he that he possesses. I just think that family as a space of I guess reproduction, but it's not even reproduction, right? Because it's the child's initial exposure 
to to these um to the authoritarian state right um the the word docile stood out to me uh, obviously but it, the, the, these structures must function to make uh children in the household shy fearful of authority good and docile in the authoritarian sense of the words and i think that there, the analysis of the family that you get in Marx, particularly in Capital Volume One, is fundamentally different from this. This is a completely different. Uh, this is this is a move away, I think, from some of some of the Marxist analysis that we get that we get earlier. And it's because of the introduction of of the psychoanalytic framework here, or at least like Reich's mutated version of it. Right, and I think what's important to Reich is. Well, he does a pretty systematic breakdown of why Freudianism is a a preferred methodology yeah, over Marxism. Yeah, in terms of analyzing, you know, how society enacts and modifies repression over time. I mean, there is a question of which came first, the chicken or the egg, but it it seems uh, on Reich's terms that it comes first with authoritarian pressures from the outside, which produce the sort of moral kernel inside of the family that then, you know, projects onto individual members of the family and performs the kinds of sexual repression that have been outlined by Freud. And, And the first one that he goes for is this notion of infantile sexuality and how our mediation of infantile sexuality inside of the family is is our way of reproducing the subject. And when I read Reich this time around, I mean, I, I've looked at this stuff before, but now after having looked at some Freud stuff and then looking at this again, I think it's important to note that what we understand as infantile sexuality not be construed as adult conventional yeah. sex. And this is this is part of the problem is because that image of adult conventional sex gets projected onto the child as a as a justification for cutting the child off from those behaviors. What that does then is that figure of the child then allows us, the figure of the morally mediated child then allows us to ground this sort of broader notion of morality. Yeah, I mean, when he says sexuality, he probably means, you know, libido, psychological energy investments in terms of objects that are attached to, desired, you know, they are felt when they are lost. It's 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 not. There's not the adult version of of, of, of sex, and we think about it in terms of, of, of intercourse. Right. I mean, and otherwise, to, to deny it ontologically, really, is when you project that notion of adult sexual intercourse on onto that, that that Freudian notion. It's almost as if you're sort of saying that it's only ever existent when the state, when when certain moral norms or the state um, legislate it to be to be, to be the case. And I and I think that's what the, the state would would like to do. And that's why it's right. well. I think that's that. That's precisely it, because when we think about what is happening inside the family, it's almost like a microcosm of the state where the the parental figure can legislate and impose this image of sexuality as the correct one, that it's this is the valid form. And we are the only ones who can do that. And these other expressions, which are not like the adult expression of sexuality at all, are invalid. Well, it's also like, like, can we just be like vulgar here? It's basically them saying like, yeah, libidinal energy has only ever existed as, uh, you know, missionary two, three times in your life, yeah. right? Like, like that, that's what it is. And, and there's this wonderful passage where, you know, he gets a little reductive, but like, I'm going to read it anyway. Um, when sexu- uh, when sexuality is prevented from attaining natural, uh, natural gratification, 
owing to the process of sexual repression, what happens is that it seeks various kinds of substitute gratifications. Thus, for instance, natural aggression is distorted into brutal sadism. And what we get is a sort of strange articulation of sublimation, right? Where it gets bound up in a sort of intense political field. Um, like, I'm not going to say that Reich doesn't have or at least isn't treating libidinal forces as like primordial in the sense in politics. Like he is, he's going to do that. Um, but what's interesting is the relationship between the representation of both sexuality and the sex act um, and the way in which like libido reintegrates itself into both those representations and then the broader political uh, structure of the time, the authoritarian one. Yeah, and in some of the uh, examples that he pulls are, you know, hey, join the army, go to exotic places, and then it has sexualized images of the indigenous yeah. peoples of those places. And that then becomes a secondary channel by which sexual repression becomes expressed. Yeah, get you get to travel the world, which means you don't also have to be like bound to the uh, the sort of sexual ethic of this one. Right. Like you can That's you right. can find these strange yeah. places where people wow. do different yeah. things. And of course, it's bound up in imperialism and all of that as well, no doubt. But um, it's it's a it, it's it, I love the just the use of that travel the world, meet interesting people and kill them. Right. Which would become sort of the mantra of Americans joking about the nature of the U.S. military in 1968. Reich was seeing this in 33. There was an argument put forward. I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was a there's this kind of fashy guy who came on the timeline and he said, I, you know, I have a lot of sex. He's like, so therefore Wilhelm Reich is wrong. Amazing. That's not, but, <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. yeah that, that's not the fucking point at all. In fact, I would say that in you know, at least I'm speaking as an American here, observing American culture, that our penchant for fetishization of the exotic and the often shameless and crude objectification of women and men in some sense, where the sexual act becomes an act of either transgression or capture becomes a further elaboration of Reich's thesis. I mean, you have to consider for, for Reich fundamentally, it's not, it's not so much about the sexual act. It's about the, what he says, the function of the orgasm, which is the release, the release of fundamental sort of built up tension. It's, it's more, if anything, he's a figure of Aristotelian catharsis. In that sense, you know, in terms, in terms of a uh, yeah, purification, a uh, purging, but there's a purging that arises from a constant sort of biological sort of fountain of, of energy, which is later go to call uh, or orgone. But in that sense, it, all it is is it, it's, it's repent, it's repressed, kept back energy. And I think, I mean, James Strick, uh, to go on the, the the example you were talking about, Greg, he, he meant he, in the Q and A for his uh, his talk he gave on his book about Wilhelm Reich, biologist, about his uh, experiments on on cancer cells using uh, micro uh, light microscopy in, in the thirties. He does talk. Uh, he does actually sort of give a counterpoint to this idea of you have Reich would. I mean, right, I think we've cut, we've made progress in terms of what he considers to be the sexual revolution, but you could also see in a sense of the desire, you know, sort of this this this. This, this desire of the, the slightly more fascist machismo conquering male to simply tally up numbers. That's right. Yeah. There's, there's nothing to do with release here. If anything, I mean, if anything, I mean, I go to a contrapoints video about pickup artists. These people don't enjoy sexual relationships at all. Mm -hmm. Essentially, they're, they're, they're more, they're more uh, sort of 
blocked up with their own shit than ever. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because in his book, Listen, Little Man, he goes into that. But this can also be one of the challenging things to Reich's thesis, which is he does have a sort of idyllic notion of love that might be grounded in a kind of naturalism. And this is what Deleuze and Gattari critique him on. But I I don't think that um, defeats the argument that you're presenting here, which is that there are under under this sort of dominance-oriented kind of sexuality that we're talking about, there are certain vectors through which sexuality is expressed, but it doesn't engage, it, it, it doesn't engender the kind of release that that uh, Wilhelm Reich is privileging, and nor does it treat sexuality in any other way other than this sort of objectification of, of objects outside of the... Yeah, sex. I think I wa- want to be careful when I talk, when I say sex act, right? Because like, there, there, there is no discussion of what like proper the the sexual ethic in this chapter um that's like, right yeah. but i i do think that the way in which sex acts are represented in the authoritarian society is really important especially when reich is talking about the way in which um conservative women in the family find themselves horrified at the prospect of their own liberation the way in which families become horrified at the notion of the notion of child sexuality, which is not right. Reich's going to make it clear is not the way in which fully subjectivated adults and like workers are going to understand the representation of sex and sexuality. So I do think that the way in which sex as an activity is represented is important and material. Like I, I know that we want to have this discussion about like libidinal forces and all of that, but I do actually think like the the while it's not directly touched on, it's it's important here. Plus, in this also in sense in which you know to be completely unrepressed to always be getting this sort of tension out of you isn't isn't something that for Reich is is going to be you know this 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 uh, this Marquis de Sade esque free for all yeah. where it feels good do yeah. it no this this the the very sadistic impulse of Reich is this. A secondary layer brought up by repression itself. So he's quite naive in this sense, really. And I think he he, he has to be naive, I guess, in the sense that he's coming at this thinking of this you know, young new science, which he is a uh, which he thinks he's really got something going for. He thinks he's got a new science of organomics. He thinks he's found these bions for his experience of cancer cells, which still haven't been fully critically examined. If you've seen the work of James Strick, but you can't say why for a way if, if they're right or not. But he saw himself as this. This sort of visionary of a new science, egotistical, but of course, but in a sense, his naivety about the power of de-repressing sexuality to bring forth this area of he calls it social responsibility. For God's sake, he he is trying to eliminate these sadistic, cruel impulses through the, the lack of repression, because the repression which builds this intermediary layer of upon sort of a person's body, upon their personality. Of yeah, cruelty. and I was wondering what. Adam and Craig, you thought about this uh, passage on page 29 where he goes, it wasn't until relatively late with the establishment of an authoritarian patriarchy and the beginning of the division of the classes that suppression of sexuality begins to make its appearance. This is going to – this runs counter to a lot of anthropological arguments both of his day and the ones that we'll see in – the third part of anti-Oedipus. 
And I was wondering what you guys thought of that, because it's just thrown in and then he moves on to sex political organizing. I'll have to go back and look at part three of Anti-Oedipus to get like the full critique of that. But I think one of the ways that Deleuze and Guattari incorporate that notion is to say that Oedipus evolves over time and over different social structures and as the mode of production also evolves. So, you know, the kind of repression that we experience, for example, in the pre-modern society versus the despotic, you know, feudalistic society, that it changes over time. And it stands to reason that Oedipus could even change again uh, under post-capitalist conditions. Yeah, I mean, if I'm saying that quote correctly in terms of the, the arrival, the development of early capitalism creating this you know, uh, stronger striations, stratification of, of sexual mores and, and sexual uh, authoritarianism. I'm just brought back to the work of um, a medievalist, uh, Dr. Eleanor Yaniger, who has gone on a series of podcasts to talk about how incredibly, uh, not necessarily relaxed, but much more relaxed than we consider to be sort of how sexually wise the Middle Ages were. It was it was an incredibly horny time. And I, want, I wonder in terms of the marriage contract as a, Part, you know, original relation of, of property, how that develops in terms of how property gets more fixed and striated and is seen as something that is you know, more internally fixed, more guaranteed by the rule of law and more divisible between uh, people. I, I, I think that's a quite a plausible hypothesis. And I think Bright, Bright does this too, and even to an extent that there can be seen to be a break with Freud, because there's a footnote, uh, the second chapter, where he talks about the Oedipus effect as an effect of yeah. repression. Yeah, right. Not the cause right. of it, and that's mm. that seems to me like a reversal of Freud. And even and even then, he still invokes some of Freud's most fun foundational myths to an extent. I mean, when, that story from Lenin of the soldiers who, uh, yeah, actually, let I me mean, get the Lenin quote. It's, it's just it's a nice enough story to read, and this and this is for me is as a callback to Totem and, and Taboo. Uh, hold on, let me just get Lenin. Yeah, so. The soldier had the greatest sympathy for the cause of the peasants. His eyes shone at the mere mention of land. Several times the soldiers had taken over their military power, but never was there any decided utilisation of this power. The soldiers became hesitant. A few hours after having killed one of their hated superiors, they let the others go free, began negotiations with the authorities and let themselves be shot, laid down again under the rod and let themselves be put in the yoke. And you can see you can see a repetition here of Freud's primal story in the Totem and Taboo, in which the, the repressive structure of the father having betrothed the mother leads to the sons all getting together, killing their father. And then, because of the fact they feel so guilty because of this, due to a contradictory yet entirely natural uh, for Freud's you know, familial love, they simply put him up again as informed representation. And this is how they reproduce it through representation. Yeah, and I'm wondering to the extent we can see a break. Freud, it's, it's a chicken the egg situation. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 quite puzzling. No, I I just think it's interesting how I wish he'd delved into this a bit more. And look, maybe this wouldn't be that much of a reversal. And in fact, what what it would be is the systematizing of it. The transgression present in the act of the soldiers guarantees the recuperation and the completion of that cycle. Right, the transgression itself is what enables that full Oedipal capture to take place, and that's right out of Anti-Oedipus too. Yep. It should also be stated that, in conjunction with our will to transgress Oedipus, the acceptance of Oedipus as the figure to which all trauma 
stimuli and other kinds of mental phenomena are reducible is itself the completion of the process of oedipalization. Yeah, and I'm wondering, kind of at this at this in particular, because like you and you and Adam have have read more Reich than I have. Regrettably, I, I really enjoyed this, and I'm I think I'm just going to have to read this whole book now this weekend. But um, what I'm interested in too is sort of the way in which the notion of like a materialist analysis of like a libidinal investment can actually inform economic relations. And again, I made, I made this joke earlier. I don't know if it was while we were recording or not. I have a horrendous memory, but like, I thought this book was probably written in like the fifties. I was like, Oh, okay. Like, you know, he's just, he's just, he's just reflecting on, you know, the, the, the happenings of, of the second world war. Like, this is all pretty cool. Then of course you do like a brief Google search. You're like, Holy shit. Like, you know, he's completely immersed in this nightmare um, of what will end up being one of the most terrifying expenditures of human life, one of the most disturbing eras in European history. Um, And he's able to have this sort of oddball disposition, no doubt, but a remarkable clarity um, about the the nature of the investment of the average human being. Because one of the things I think that that was getting lost, that gets lost in uh, both Marxist and liberal historical analyses of the rise of fascism is that the relationship between the authoritarian figure or the authoritarian body and the mass body gets sort of distorted. The power relation is made far too refined, far too simple. And this is at least attempting to obliterate some of those more classical notions of like power, execution of authority, um, because it, it almost seems like you can read, in some sense, Reich against Arendt, against conventional history. You know, I, so I just, I'm wondering whether or not we could read Reich as also like a critical contemporary historian. Definitely a political scientist in this case. <laughs> a very strange way. I, mean, I, I have a question that sort of goes back to the foundation of this. Maybe we could put it off till later. I was just going to ask, you know, to what extent, you know, what, what, what could be the groundwork for uh, a materialist psychology? Because there's a sense in which Reich thought he was working from an empirical basis because he thought he had found a material basis for this life energy, this psychic energy through his studies of cancer cells and how they uh, – read James Frick's book, Wilhelm Reich Biologist, but biology is, is beyond me, but it's, <laughs> it's fascinating enough. And, and, but he, he tried to identify a material empirical source for the psychological as it, as it emerges from a primordial kind of life, but it, is there any other way to have material psychology these days? Is there any way to do psychological psychology materially? I mean, I think you can, you know, look at body movements and behaviours, but you're not really looking at an inside there. And then maybe the inside-outside dichotomy is the problem. But maybe this is just like a vulgar Anglo-analytic empiricism here. But, you know, how, how can this project get off the ground from the outset? Especially if you're talking to the vulgar Marxists who think right. that more or less using words is idealist. Well, one of the problems is 
begins with the inception of the problematic, um, which is that the inside-outside distinction is presupposed from the start. And this is precisely what Deleuze and Qatari say that Reich runs up against. They say that he goes further than Marcuse in, in terms of his Freudo-Marxism, but there's a passage in Anti-Oedipus, I'm actually looking on page 38 right now, that kind of gets to the root of the problem, and I'll just read it straight off. They say, yet Reich himself never manages to provide a satisfactory explanation of this phenomenon because at a certain point he reintroduces precisely the line of argument that he was in the process of demolishing by creating a distinction between rationality as it is or ought to be in the process of social production and the irrational element in desire by regarding only this latter as a suitable subject for psychoanalytic investigation. I'll stop there for one moment. That's one of the things that he does do in this essay is is reinforce this delineation between rational and irrational. And Deleuze and Guattari are seeking to, to mend that divide. They go on to say, hence the sole task he assigns psychoanalysis is the explanation of the negative, the subjective, the inhibited. So you can see this sort of critique of Hegel and Freud here too, within the social field. He therefore necessarily returns to a dualism between the real object rationally produced on the one hand and irrational fantasizing production on the other. He gives up trying to discover the common denominator or the co-extension of the social field and desires. And so this is basically the point of chapter one of Anti-Oedipus. And lastly, they say, in order to establish the basis for a genuinely materialistic psychiatry, to answer Adam's question, there was a category that Reich was sorely in need of, that of desiring production, which would apply to the real in both its so-called rational and irrational forms, and I would add to that into the notion of the interior of desire and its exterior. Well, I'm not sure the Marx is going to like that, Craig, because reality <laughs> is what you can see and what you can what you can hit people with. Um, it's, 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 if anything, it's like a series of large bricks. I mean, there's not, there's not even any Marxist atomists. Where are the machines? I'm very confused. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, <laughs> Look, man hit hammer, man turn hammer around and hit bourgeois. And I mean, if if, if, if man hits hammers enough, if he hits girder with hammer enough, then eventually the girder breaks and the bourgeoisie like rises from from below it and then gets hit with a hammer. And then it's no, no, I, I'm sorry, I'm too confused. I need to know what the boiling point is of the libido before we move forward. Like this, is- oh, <laughs> where it turns to steam. <laughs> Uh, was, I think that's not a bad explanation of the, uh, the development between quantity and, and quality, although he doesn't quite use the, the proper term, which is ratio. Well, I mean, I, I think one, one passage that we can talk about is the point is that every social order produces the masses of its members, uh, that structure which, need, uh, which it needs to achieve its main aims. And like, this is Reich as like theorist of subjectivation, right? Like, this is Reich as uh proto a theory of docility right all of the all of the institutions of any given uh social order must if that social body is to subsist always be reproducing subjects which correspond directly to uh to its primary aims like no war is possible without this um that's why for example like any decent uh, debater in high school or college, like one of the implications of, say, a biopower position is like the construction of mass bodies of war. Um, and what Reich touches on here is that, like, the imperial, uh, the imperial 
ideology must to succeed it must first alter the mass psychological structure of the social body like it, it must do that first before it's able to like construct you know enough guns enough you know tiger tanks or whatever like it needs to do this first in order to to succeed which is like why the brown shirts and so on play such an important insipid role this is the issue here too is that think about how our education not only as members of a family but as students and as workers and so so forth gives our society such an incredible level of consistency even though it's wrought with contradictions, it's so easy to fall back into a reactionary pattern if things go awry in, at a, in an attempt at revolution or even just making modest progress. I mean, we can't even do that here in the United States with, with healthcare, for example. And often the, this figure of the family, rugged individualism, so on and so forth, is invoked to create these impasses towards that kind of progress. What I'm getting at here is just the incredible power the anchoring power of the family, of the the sort of bedrock notions of what it means to be a member of a culture, of a society, and so forth. But yeah, in terms of the the seizing the means of subjectivation uh, here, I think he is advocating for that because he understands the subject in the same way Deleuze and Guattari did as a, a site of production, and it's based in this Freudian model of psychosexual oppression. I mean, there's a quote here, the family is the factory of its structure and ideology. It, it, he's seeing at the unconscious or at least the structures of the unconscious, this intermediate layer of the repressed, um, of the process of repression, he sees it as a factory, he sees it as kind of, you know, machinic. And there's a sense in which he's critiquing Marxists who think that it's just, you know, the, the, the psychology, the affect of the worker is only just coming from the outside and inside, you know, there can be little incursions, but overall it's a kind of a, it is just a reflection. It's not really any, anything, um, Anything sort of active in itself as little activity. You know, they, they, he derides Marxists to describe Hitlerism, you know, Nazism as just a psychosis. It's, it's, it's a crappy explanation of just saying it's just a delusion, it's psychosis, it's chauvinism. You know, and God does, doesn't doesn't <laughs> doesn't critique of those sort of positions really still hold up today. That's in which he talks about you know, it, you know even if. The worker has a revolutionary consciousness. There's still a sense in which he has these norms of morality and propriety and, and duty. You know, he knows what best suit to wear for for church on Sunday. And you know, his his overall there's a sense in which the forces of reaction, non-revolutionary forces at least, are always operative at the smallest levels of culture. He says, you know, you know, the, the relative norms of a uh, of regular family life can do more to still reactionary forces than a. Um, a million rallies, and I think this works specifically well in the case of Britain, where it's a country of you know, proper blokes doing proper things. So, sif up a lip and all that. Very you know, a lot of unwritten or explicitly unwritten rules. And it just reminds me of um, it reminds me of this this uh, passage from a story by G.K. Chesterton called "The Crime of the Communists." And there's a a brilliant uh, section here where essentially uh, is is talking about a a communist accused of a crime. So basically, the reason why he can't do this crime, or couldn't have done it, is because uh, he he's an Englishman, and therefore he wouldn't have gone out to smoke, which would have implicated him in this crime, without finishing his port. So it's an amazing section of me reader. He only wanted to abolish God, explained Father Brown. He only wanted to destroy the Ten Commandments and root up all the religion and civilization that had made him, and wash out all the common sets of ownership and honesty, 
and let his culture and country be flattened out by savages from the ends of the earth. That's all he wanted. You have no right to accuse him of anything beyond that. Hang it all, everybody draws a line somewhere. But you come here and calmly suggest a Mandeville man of the old generation would have begun to smoke or even strike a match whilst he was still drinking the college port. The vintage of 08. No, no, men are not so utterly about laws and limits as all that. And that to me summarizes the entire argument of Reich. People's, you can still, you can be, a, you can be, have a revolutionary affect and still follow the rules of the old boys club. There's a line in here. I can't find it right now, but, and it appears as a grace note, but I think it has tremendous implications for whatever Reich's ultimate revolutionary praxis is, which is that in our attempts to be anti-authoritarians, whether that means, for example, transgressing against the father, like I'm going to do this because daddy told me not to, if that will or impulse manifests in a revolutionary fashion and the revolution were to fail or the rebellion were to fail, man then falls back upon the figure of the father and then tends to reinstall all of the things that that he was striving against. And this is the dynamic that's created in the sort of Oedipal triangle is that if I if I attempt to transgress against the triangle and fight against my father and fail, well, in my failure, I can make recourse to being just like him. There's something about that that little loop there that I think is really important in terms of cracking the code on whatever the, the sort of break with the Oedipal uh, triangle um, at least in terms of Reich's view of it, is. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's absolutely right. But like more broadly, and I'll just be the the silly one because whatever. Like if the best critique you have is that like, oh, it's chauvinism. Oh, it's stupidity. And you keep losing to it. Like yeah. what? What you, the? You yeah. have to figure out why. Like, I'm yeah. sorry, but <laughs> simply writing off these tendencies while being pounded into the floor by them is like the absolute armchair bullshit academic Marxist garbage that like all of these movements have been dealing with for like 200 years now. I mean, I, I mean, it's just at this point or 180 years now, at, at this point, it's 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 silly to think that these forces don't that these ideological forces don't manifest in material reality. Like I, you don't have to read more than Lukács to understand that, <laughs> you know, say. Will, if it's subjective, it isn't no, real. It's, it's, you're, you're, you're just being <laughs> idealist. Well, subjects, don't, subjects don't exist. I mean, you know, I've read the Wikipedia page for Antiedipus. Subjects not only don't exist, but if you think subjects do exist, you're simply bourgeois. Church. I'm not so. I, I'm, I, I am just, I am simply, I am simply the hammer of history moving into the bourgeois face of tomorrow. I have no subjectivity. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what I'm uh. saying. Do we have any final thoughts on the text? It's a good book. It's a good book. <laughs> it's a good book. Yeah. It's, I, it's, it's I, still dangerously prescient. <laughs> and if you do pick up this book, I mean, the first essay is the biggest banger that I've read so far. I'm about five or six essays into it. Uh, there's some a little bit of weirdness as you, as you move forward into the authoritarian ideology essay and, and the race theory essay. But ultimately, I think, I, I think the authoritarian ideology essay, which we didn't cover here, uh, helps you get more of a handle on sort some of the broader strokes that Reich makes, what, which I then think becomes important to, for example, the development of Deleuze and Gattari's theory of paranoiac and pervert, reactionary and revolutionary as being sort of micro tendencies within the same individual, and and a lot of that gets fleshed out in those later essays. So I say, 
move ahead. If you if you catch this essay and you think it's rad, go to the second and third and fourth. Yeah, that, that's all. I, I mean, it's it, it's a good book. It, like it's 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 a good. Go forth and accumulate. 